Hi there. Welcome to the Branch Life Podcast. We're so happy that you tuned in. Please join us today as we continue our series through the book of Matthew. Welcome to Branch Life Church's Seven Days That Changed the World series. This is a series I'm very excited about because it's all about the seven days from Jesus entering Jerusalem to when he died and rose again. These seven days have transformed the world as we know it. And if you join us on this journey, it can transform you too. So we are glad that you're here. We hope that you'll stay to the end. We've got some great information to share with you. And our prayer is that this series will be an encouragement to you. Don't forget to fill out that online connection card before you leave. And again, we're glad you're here. Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, worship this morning. As uh, Chris said, it happens to be Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday before Easter. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be back with you this morning. Super appreciated what Pastor Alex and Pastor Scott had to say over the last couple of weeks as they brought to you the word as we continue in this series called Seven Days That Changed the World. And Pastor Alex and Pastor Scott talked to you about days four and five. And today we will cover day six. If you're a guest with us or if you have your Matthew journals, we'd love for you to turn to page 150 in your journals or Matthew chapter 26, right around verse 57. We're going to dive right into this this morning. Matthew chapter 26 and Matthew chapter 27 uh, will lead us right up to the very conclusion of the book of Matthew. And next Sunday, Easter Sunday, will be our grand finale, not only of the seven days that changed the world, but of our Matthew study. We're excited about where we're headed next, Uh, but today we'll be in chapters 26 and 27. And today is the day where we talk about the darkest moment this world has ever faced. This This is maybe the heaviest section of scripture where we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. All of the book of Matthew has been building up to this point. All of Jesus' stories, all of Jesus' teaching, his entire life, often on Christmas we say he was born to die, and this is the moment where his death becomes a reality. In the last two days, as we look over what the disciples did in the upper room, as we look at the worth of Jesus, as he's preparing for his his, uh, death and burial, and he was poured over by that perfume and that ointment from, from that beautiful sister in Christ, as we look at then the plan of God that cannot be stopped by, by politics, by stupidity, by abandonment, by betrayal. We now come to this moment, and, and what happened at the end of day five is Jesus had gone to the garden where he was going to spend some time in prayer. 
He prayed together at the Garden of Gethsemane. He took his three disciples that he was pouring into who were close to his heart. They kept falling asleep, right? And he kept saying, wake up, I need you to pray. And this moment, this this greatest, grandest, darkest moment was preceded by prayer. Whenever anything important in Scripture happens, it was always preceded by prayer. In the beginning of Matthew, before Jesus started his three years of ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying. Jesus was dedicated and teaches us about the importance of a pattern of prayer. And before this moment, Jesus himself went away at night, late at night. This wasn't just getting on his knees before bedtime and saying to God, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. No, this was Jesus sacrificing of his sleep and of his time, going together with his friends to the garden, out of the upper room, where they would spend a burdensome amount of time in prayer. In other words, it was hard work for them to pray. Prayer's not meant to just be easy. God tells us to pray without ceasing, but so often we, we use prayer kind of like we use Tic Tacs. You know, I'll take one when I need one. And give me the orange flavored. I don't want the mint kind. Because all of us know orange are the best flavored Tic Tacs. And some of us have our favorite prayers that we pop like Tic Tacs, right? And, and we just shoot them up here and there and we put them in. We get the good breath for the moment. We go on. To, no, so God has designed prayer to be an interaction between he and, and we enter into the throne room of God with passion, with energy, with strength, with all of our mind, soul, and being. Have you spent time in the importance of this moment of your life, whatever's coming up next, just passionately pleading with God, connecting with him on an intimate level, Spending a significant amount of time with God in the rhythms of your life. Prayer is this powerful practice that Jesus demonstrates in this moment. He got alone with God before his death. The thing that he was building up to. It was going to happen the next day. And so what does Jesus do of anything that he could do with the last day of his life? He spent some time with his friends and he got away and he prayed. The Bible says that he prayed so passionately. That he prayed so intimately that he prayed so all in with his emotions, his his mind, his body that he sweat drops of blood. He knew what laid before him on day six. He knew it was going to be hard. He knew he was going to be broken. He knew there was going to be not only physical pain, but relational pain, spiritual pain, supernatural pain, natural pain. He was going to feel all of those things. And as God, he knew well what he was in store for. Your worst pain, your worst moment, your worst hurt, your darkest night, Jesus understands. He has been there. He's sweat those drops of blood. He has cried those same tears. Yet he voluntarily continued forward into day six. Probably in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was there 11, 11.30, 12 at night. When Judas brought up the betrayal... When Judas came with the army and they, they, he, they, he kissed Jesus on the cheek and he, he stabbed his friend in the back figuratively, Peter reaches out and cuts off a guy's ear literally 
That was probably all happening at 12 or 1 in the morning, the beginning of day 6. And Jesus, early in the morning of day 6, was carried away. He was arrested by the leaders in the city in that moment, taken away under armed guard. And we come to pages uh, 150. Let's go in chapter 26, verse 57. In verse 57, it says this, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas. Pastor Alex told us all about Caiaphas. Caiaphas is that religious leader of the moment. He is the guy in charge of that grand temple. And Caiaphas is the man, the main player, who's responsible for day six. Caiaphas is the one who launched the successful plot to kill God. That's who he is in Scripture. We get mad at Judas for betraying a friend. But Caiaphas was behind the whole thing. He was the one that was most threatened. His kingdom, that glorious temple that was, took up most of the city, right, that had the huge courtyards and the, and the story, it was stories high, and the, it was where all the money was made. It was where all the power was held. He sat at the very center of that power, and he hoarded it for himself, and he thought to himself, I could kill God. And he was successful in his plot. Jesus now stands before Caiaphas, who thinks he's in charge. He thinks he's running day six. He thinks he's got the plan. He doesn't see the dark forces that are are manipulating him behind the scenes. He doesn't see God's plan, unstoppable plan in action. Caiaphas just sees what Caiaphas wants to see. And what we will notice today in day six is we're going to see a combination of three things coming together. The natural, the supernatural, and the spiritual. And in this natural state, Caiaphas, in his brokenness, in his limited point of view, thought he was doing the world a favor by arresting Jesus and putting him to trial for his death. And Jesus stands in front of Caiaphas, and I remember just moments ago, Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, don't think I could call 10,000 angels. Here's Caiaphas staring at Jesus' eye in the eye and working a plot to kill him. And how does Jesus not call 10,000 angels and just says, get him. Take that guy down. He's far too big for his britches. That guy thinks he's running. Like Jesus and all of his, no wonder he's silent. Because if I open my mouth, there will be 10,000 angels that come down here. And it's going to be over. And that's not God's plan. So Jesus stands in front of Caiaphas. He hears the accusations. He watches the manipulation of false witness, the twisting of words, so that they can bend this moment to to their will. And as he's being tried, as he's being made fun of, if you jump to verse 69... We see just at the end of that arrest that all of the disciples scattered and they left. That's natural. Your leader gets arrested and he may be killed and you're Philip and you're Matthew and you're John and you're Mary and and you're all of the other disciples. What do you do? You, You scatter. I don't want to get arrested either. But somehow Peter being Peter, loving Peter, he shows up in the courtyard of the temple where this is taking place. And he sneaks his way around and listen to this account in verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, probably with his hood over his head, low on his eyebrows. And a servant girl came up to him and peered under the hood and said, Hey, 
aren't you the guy that was with Jesus in Galilee? But he denied it before him. I don't know what you mean, Peter said. When he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth, pointing at Peter. And again, Peter denied with an oath, I swear I don't know this man. And after a little while, another bystander came up to Peter and said, certainly you too are one of them. For your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. At supper, Jesus said to Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. When does a rooster crow? Sun, sunrise. The sun was rising on day six, and Peter had just denied Jesus three times, who was standing for trial in his life just across the courtyard. To save his own skin, he swears by heaven and earth that he doesn't know Jesus, and he hides his face because he's terrified more of man than he is of God, and the rooster crows, and he remembers the prediction of Jesus has come true. I think this moment is the moment that everything changes for Peter. He knows now beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is God. He would never deny Jesus, yet he did it, and Jesus predicted it, and then the rooster crows, and his heart breaks and he went away and he wept bitterly and Jesus knowing full well what's happening out in the courtyard feels now the the abandonment of his friend I, I I would want to do everything if I was Jesus to run out to Peter and say Peter it's okay I gotta do this I would want to go be with my friend who was hurting and who was crying but Jesus had to stay standing and get made fun of and mocked and trialed while his friend was weeping bitterly, while his disciples were scattered and scared. He couldn't comfort them. He couldn't reassure them. He had tried many, many times to say, guys, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed, but don't worry. I'm going to rise again. And I think all Jesus could do was have that conversation with God, make my disciples remember that I'm going to rise again. Peter now being convinced of what happened and predictions coming true, prophecy being fulfilled, all this through this story. In verse 27, in chapter 27, in verse 1, it says, The morning came, and the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him from the Jewish council to the Roman governor named Pilate. The very next moment, we see now what happens to Judas, the betrayer. Judas, the guy that had sold his loyalty and friendship to Jesus for 30 pieces of gold, one month's salary, now realizes that what he has done has caused the death of his friend. I don't know if Judas intended for Jesus to die. I don't know if that was in his heart or in his mind. And many people have said, what happened to Judas? Does Judas go to heaven? Is Judas a follower of Jesus? Is Judas in the deepest, darkest pit of hell? Where is Judas now? I can't read this paragraph without thinking to myself that Judas repented. Judas had a change of heart. That Judas changed his mind. And, and he said in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
And throwing down the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. He gave the money back. And the Bible says that he, he went and he hanged himself. And that his body would eventually fall to a pile of rocks. And that Judas would die. And people say, no, Judas can't be in heaven because he committed suicide. And isn't suicide the unforgivable sin? It is not. Nowhere in scripture does it say that someone who commits suicide doesn't go to heaven. Over and over in scripture it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, every sin, every sin that you've ever committed and ever will commit has been forgiven because it's been laid on the cross. And if you're a believer in Jesus and you have that low moment where you take your own life, you go to heaven. Because your sin was paid for on the cross. What matters is if you've believed, if you've repented in Jesus. And when I read this, I see Judas saying, that's God. I'm sorry. I give my money back. But overwhelmed by the grief and the guilt, he goes to that low moment in that low place. And he kills himself. And remember Jesus knowing full well as he's standing before Pilate what's now happening to his friend Judas. And he stays there. In front of that council who will now predict and pronounce a death sentence. In verse 11, Jesus stands before Pilate, who's quite frankly confused. What am I going to do with Jesus? Doesn't seem like he's really done anything that wrong. Pilate doesn't believe in the God of the Jews. Pilate doesn't care that Jesus is claiming to tear the temple down and raise it in three days. Pilate doesn't think he's a violent man or has hurt anybody. As a matter of fact, he's only known as a healer and a teacher. And so Pilate doesn't want to do anything. Pilate's wife comes out and says, don't do anything with this man. I've been, I've been plagued in my dreams, right? But on the outside, Pilate has a crowd of people that are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate sees that there's a mob forming, stirred up by the religious leaders of the day. The mob that was just six days ago shouting, Hosanna, 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 is now shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus sees this mob, Pilate sees this mob, and he doesn't know what to do with him. So Pilate comes up with schemes. I'll trade him for the worst guy in the whole jail. Bring me Barabbas. I'll let him choose between Jesus and Barabbas. Guess who they chose? Free Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And so Pilate gets to the point where he sees no other alternative. And in verse 24, so when Pilate saw what, that he was gaining nothing, and rather a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See for yourselves. And the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. That's a powerful sentence. And then he released Barabbas. And having Jesus scourged, he delivered to be crucified. We know from history and we know from other parts of Scripture that this scourging, the one word here in Matthew is a massive amount of pain and suffering. Jesus was taken out to the courtyard and his body was stretched either over a, a, a metal post or up a, a wooden tree and his back was stretched out and a Roman soldier with his power and his might would bring the tool of scourging to bear on Jesus' back, which was a leather whip that had nine tails on it. At the end were attached stone, bone, glass, and rock. And that soldier, for every one whip across Jesus stretched out back, would have nine stripes. 
nine cuts, nine bruises that would wrap around Jesus' back and hug, hug, hug his ribs. And then they would pull back that whip and it would rip through his flesh. We understand that in this moment as that scourging took place, that the flesh around Jesus' ribcage and back was so torn that you could see his lungs. This is God in flesh allowing man to beat and bruise him. He could call 10,000 angels. And he remained silent in this moment as a Roman soldier whipped and beat him. Pilate says he was then delivered over to be crucified. The worst death known to man at that moment, saved for the vilest of offenders. These soldiers then, knowing this man was sentenced to die, had free reign. The, the religious leaders, the, the Jewish people that were involved, began this rhythm of mocking Jesus, of slapping him, of pulling out his beard, of covering his now a bare back that's bleeding profusely with a, with a robe that would dry to his body. They would punch him in the face. They would spit on him. They would say, if you're the king of the Jews, tell us, tell us if you're God, who hit you? Who slapped you? We get offended by one slap at the Oscars. What about hundreds? What about a crown of thorns beaten into the skull? Of our Savior. And in this one moment, Jesus then endures this beating and this mockery, and he's then asked to carry the cross. He's then asked to carry the cross from the place of being beaten down the road through the center of town up to the hill called the skull. How could he even have the strength? And then Jesus turns to us, and we hear from Paul and the Holy Spirit. You, I, we're called to carry our cross. And to follow Jesus in these moments? After being mocked, verse 32, Jesus is carrying his cross because of the severe beating for the turmoil that his body had been under and the trauma that he faced. The Bible says that they had to find someone to help him carry his cross. Simon, the man of Cyrene, was his name, and they compelled him to carry the cross of Jesus. And they came to the place of Golgotha, the place of the skull. They offered him wine to drink and mixed with gall, but he, he tasted it and he would not drink it. And when they had, they crucified him. Jesus after having his cross carried, is taken to the hill of the skull. And, and the way that the crucifixion is laid out is, is the cross is laid down on the ground. And typically, a criminal doesn't want to die, would be fighting the Roman soldiers, and they'd place him on the cross, and they hold down their arms, and they would tie their wrists, tie their feet to that cross so they could lift it up, and they could spend the next couple of days hanging on that cross until they died. But for Jesus, he didn't have to be taken to that cross forcefully. I imagine in my mind, Simon lays the cross on the ground, Jesus thanks him, and he willingly lays on that cross. He stretches out his hand on one side and the other, and the Roman soldiers then grab the nails like railroad spikes, and they take the hammer and they drive it through his wrist so that 
It wouldn't rip out of his hands when he's hanging on the cross. They put his feet together at the bottom of that wooden cross and they drive a single nail through his feet. The pain and the agony of that moment, Jesus still doesn't call a thousand angels. And then they have to lift the cross and drop it into place. And here's the torture of the crucifixion. You don't die on the cross because of trauma. You die on the cross because of suffocation. Every breath that you take on that cross is only made possible by straining on those nails on your hands and pushing on those nails on your feet so he can extend his lungs, grab a breath of air, and then sink back down. And when he just can't think he can breathe again, he has to repeat that process for every breath. His back is bore open from the scourging and it's rubbing against that wooden cross with every breath The thorn of crowns is on his head. He's dripping drops of blood. He's been beaten in the face. He's been been made fun of in every moment. In this natural state, Jesus is now crucified and hanging on the cross. We see naturally what happens in these moments. As these characters bear to, to the prophecy that's in the Old Testament Jesus was betrayed by Jesus, his friend. The religious leaders funded it so that it would happen. The disciples scattered and they abandoned him. Peter, his best friend, denies him. The crowd yells, crucify him. Pilate washes his hands. The soldiers beat him and drive in the nails. And to top it all off, the other thief on the cross now makes fun of him and says, if you can't save save yourself and save me too while you're at it. Man is capable of horrible things. We live in a broken world filled with broken people. We have friends that will betray us. We have family members that will abandon us. We have political leaders that will take advantage of us. We have robbers and thieves and slanderers and mockers out there who will do horrible things to us. Why in the world does Jesus allow himself to be beaten and bruised emotionally, spiritually, and physically by friends, by family, by soldiers, and by his own nation? Because Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves Judas. Jesus loves Caiaphas. Jesus loves Pilate. He loves Peter. He loves the soldiers that were punching him in the face. He loves Simon who carried his cross. He loved the soldiers that drove in the nails. Jesus loved the thieves that were on the cross and he was doing what he was doing because he loved every single one of them. What was Jesus thinking in the silence when Caiaphas plotted to kill him? Jesus was thinking, I love you. When Peter was crying on the side of the road, Jesus was thinking, I love you. When Judas was preparing the noose, Jesus was thinking, I love you. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he was thinking, I love you. See, the Bible's clear 
that every one of us have sinned. That every one of us are guilty of betrayal. We're guilty of judgment. We're guilty of plotting. We're guilty of of crucifying Jesus. You see, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was the sins of the world. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is my sin, not the soldiers, that put Jesus on the cross. And it's his love, not the nails, that held him there. Jesus stayed on the cross because he loves you and because he loves me. Jesus stayed on the cross because of your life, because of your face, because of your family, because of Pottstown, Pennsylvania, because of Jerusalem and Israel, because of Moscow and Russia, because of Canada and and Africa. Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We, a broken world, need a sinless Savior to die on the cross to save us from sin. Why did Jesus not call a thousand angels? Because Jesus had to die so that you or I could be saved. When we see the cross of Jesus, we see the heart of God. And it's for the love that he has for you and I. We sing these songs over and over again. Behold the man upon a cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. Call out among the scoffers. It's my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's why we can then sing a song that says, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good to me. It's the goodness of God that allows us to have the lives that we live, and it's been bought for and paid for by the cross of Jesus. This is the natural. The natural world has been broken by sin. Why would Jesus have to go through so much in this moment? Why would Jesus have to feel this pain? Because when sin entered into the world, the plan of Jesus, the plan of God, the people of God were broken, and we were broken by sin. When the cross is happening, Jesus is being broken like the rest of us. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the supernatural. If you have your Bibles, continue on then to verse 45. Starting in verse 45, we learn that literally this was the darkest day in the world. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Now I want you for a moment to kind of rest in this sentence. It was dark in the middle of the day. Something bigger is going on here than a man dying on a cross. At this point in the, in the history of Rome, there had been hundreds, maybe thousands of crucifixions. Nero the emperor was, was, was notorious for crucifying people. They understood crucifixion. They had seen it over and over again. This was normal for them in their time and in their age. But there's something not normal about this crucifixion. 
You see, if man in his natural state is sinful men doing sinful things, then God's going to have to do something supernatural to overcome the natural. And in this moment, we realize as we're shown over and over again at the death of Jesus, the successful plot to kill God, that there is something supernatural that is happening, and even the sun recognizes it. It's dark. If you weren't watching the crucifixion, if you didn't see Jesus paraded through the center of the streets, if you didn't know about the trial, if you had been distracted because you were binging on Netflix or out at a sports tournament and you just showed up to Jerusalem for this day, you would think to yourself about the sixth hour, why is it dark out? Where is the sun gone? This is weird. This is odd. Something strange is happening. And about the ninth hour, with a loud voice, Jesus cries out saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on Friday night? We're going to mark the Good Friday moment. And we're going to talk about this phrase in depth. Join us at 7 p.m. on that moment. But in this moment, I want you to recognize this. There's a supernatural conversation going on. God is, Jesus is now talking to God the Father who has turned away. Maybe more painful than any other moment is the moment that you are separated now from God the Father. Why did God the Father have to turn away from Jesus? Because supernaturally in this moment, the sins of the world were being placed onto Jesus and he was paying the punishment for our debt. And a holy God cannot have communion with sin, not even one. And the sins of the world are being placed on Jesus in this moment. Supernaturally, you can vision sin from past, present, and future all being placed in this moment on the cross and being paid for in this moment on the cross. And God the Father cannot be a part of it. In his holiness, he has to separate himself from Jesus. I, I just celebrated my 44th birthday yesterday. You now have 365 shopping days until my next birthday. My kids got me a Toyota. They put a Toyota out in our front yard. It was a stuffed Yoda from Star Wars. I was very proud of the pun. Maybe one of the proudest moments of my life. I have a twin brother who also celebrated his 44th birthday. My twin and I spent every day together of our lives until we were 20 years old. I remember maybe one or two days where we happened to go on a different trip or something for school where we weren't in the same place. But rarely was there a day that I didn't. And, and we didn't even necessarily get along on most of those days. But here's the fact of the matter. He was literally always there. And for 20 years, we, spent, we, went to the same, we worked the same jobs. We went to the same school. We hung out with the same friends. We lived in the, we had the, the same rooms. And we just did everything together. Our sophomore year of college, excuse me, our, our junior year of college, he decided to go to a different school. I was going to a Bible college up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he decided to go to a Bible college for the first time. He was with me up in Scranton, but down in Clearwater, Florida. And we worked at camp together the summer before he left. And I was fine with it. I'm like, cool, man. Have a great time in Florida. We, we were even in the same suite in college together. We didn't want the same room anymore, but we were in the same suite. And I, I remember something happening, and I, I was totally surprised by it when it actually came moment for us to get into two different cars and go different directions. 
he had to leave earlier than I did, and he was getting ready to leave, and I was like, all right, see, I mean, literally, I didn't care like an hour before. I was like, see ya, I'll see you later because we always see each other. But something happened and I realized that he was leaving and that he was now no longer going to be there. And I, I ugly cried. Like, I was outside in our, in our yard and I just started sobbing and it broke down. I'm like, what is happening? And they're like, why are you saying my brother's going to Florida and I'm going to Scranton? And I don't know why I can't breathe. And it, and it was like this internal reaction that I never saw coming because physically something was now changed. Something was different. Something was going to be drastically the same. I can only imagine that feeling times a bajillion when God the Son now no longer feels the presence of God the Father. Who had always been one. They'd always been together. They'd always done everything together. And now he says, God, God, why are you turning your back on me? And in that moment, God the Father turns his back on Jesus. Why? Because there's a supernatural payment for sin that must take place. This offering must happen. And our sins are being forgiven and paid for and dealt with so that you and I can have forever communion with God the Father. The Son in this moment breathed his last. This one, this one, this one just blows my mind. How could Jesus die? I like how Matthew says it. It says he gave up the Spirit. Jesus' physical body in this moment dies. We realize that in the, in the steps of crucifixion, this is actually pretty quick. Most people would hang on the cross for hours, but he was so beaten, he was so bruised, he was so struggling for every breath that it only took three or four hours for him to die on that cross. He gave up his spirit, he died, he now is hanging dead on that cross. And in that moment, when he breathed his last, the supernatural continues to take place. The Bible says that the curtain in the temple tore in two between the holies and the holies. This isn't a small curtain. This is a large, massive, thick curtain that separates people from life and death. And in that moment, this curtain tears opposite its seams in that holiest of holy places. Nobody's there. No, nothing's happening. The curtain just tears. That's supernatural, representing now that you and I, because of the death of Jesus, have unlimited access to the presence of God. That's supernatural. In this moment now, the earth is quaking the Bible says that the earth shook because of the supernatural reality that was taking place in this moment. And then the dead were raised. I, this is the weirdest verse in the whole Bible. The dead were raised. What's that? How does that happen? What does that look like? Are they spirits? Are they dressed nice? Is this gross? Like, what's going on? I don't know. I do know that something supernatural is happening. I imagine the Jewish widow that's standing at her house and she doesn't know what's happening in the streets. She's just concerned about her next meal. It's dark out, so she's lit candles in all of her house and she's been now alone for, for over a year and her spouse is no longer with her and she sees that the, there's something dramatic happening in the atmosphere and she's, she's praying to, to her God, to the Elohim, to the Yahweh and she's asking God for protection. She's worried about being alone and she sees sees something that's happening and, and then the earth starts to shake and she gets to a safe place and she's now, now on her knees begging and when she looks up, there her dead husband is standing before her offering comfort, reassurance in these moments 
And she says to herself, how can this be? What's happening? Why are you here? Because the dead were testifying to the moment that God died. This supernatural reality that something special and spectacular was happening in this moment. Why was this so supernaturally powerful? I want you to think about this question from this moment on. Everybody, everybody in Jerusalem, everybody in Rome now had to explain the cross. They had to explain the darkness. They had to explain the earthquake. They had to explain the dead that were seen. They had to explain Jesus. They had to explain his life. They had to explain his miracles. They had to explain his prophecies. Everybody knew that this was not a normal death. It was supernatural in its power and in its scope. And there was a supernatural act that was happening that had to take place. You see, man is broken in our sin. We are completely broken. And there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. As we represent these different moments on the cross, you understand how broken Caiaphas is. You understand how broken Peter was. You understand how broken Judas is. Do you understand how broken our world is? We're, nobody's a fan of President Putin right now. Why? He's broken. Literally, the guy's evil. Murdering people for power, for pride, for empires. He's broken. And since the beginning of time, mankind has been trying to answer this question, how do we fix our brokenness? How do I deal with the pain? I don't have to stand here and convince you that you're broken. You know you are. And I don't want you to hear me and say, oh, you know every sin that I've done, you're holier than thou. I'm just as broken as you. And when you sit here, you know about your private struggles. You know about the hurt that you feel. You know about the cynicism that you have. You know about the, about the, the pits that you fall into. You know about the darkness that sweeps over you. You don't want it to be there. You don't invite it to be there. You work everything you can to get away from it. You know about the broken relationships that are involved in you. And you see the brokenness in this world happening all around us in every moment of every day. We are, we are in prayer for our Conestoga Christian School community and their families. Because they had a tragedy happen this week. And many of our branch family work at Conestoga Christian School. And we're there just a few days ago when a young man being chased by the police crashed his car into one of the teacher's cars. And she was killed instantly. Her, 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 her young daughter having to crawl out of the back seat with a separated shoulder. The man who's driving that car, running from the police, who now has killed a mom and a teacher and a friend, is broken. He's broken. He's broken emotionally because of what he's done. He's broken because of the choices that were made, but he was born broken. And we all are. We all are broken sinners and we are trying to figure out a way that we can take these pieces and we can put them back together. And we try to say, I can, I can live a better life. I can do better next time. 
I'm not as bad as that last guy over there who's got more of a broken cup and we're, we become religious and we do religious acts and, and we work at it as, as, as much as we possibly can. But there is nothing that we can naturally do in our power to fix our brokenness. I cannot put this cup back together. It has to be supernaturally fixed. And that's what God does on this moment. You see, the cross has to happen because the cross is a supernatural solution to a natural sin problem. What Jesus does on the cross is he takes our brokenness, he collects our brokenness, he stirs it, he moves it, he pays for it, he takes the price that we shouldn't pay, and then he supernaturally reassembles his people. God does something that none of us are able to do. And there is only one way to be saved. And it's through the cross of Jesus. We don't put our faith in ourselves. You can't do enough good works to save yourself. We don't put our faith in a religion. We don't put our faith in religious leaders. There's so many Caiaphases out there. We don't put our faith in institutions. We put our faith in Jesus and the cross of Jesus because that's the only supernatural solution to our natural problem. Have you been trying to save yourself? Have you been trying to do enough work to make yourself better? You can't. Don't try anymore. Submit. Follow Jesus. Repent. Throw back the 30 pieces of silver and turn to God and say, Lord, I need you to fix my problem. Only a supernatural God can fix a natural man's problem. Today, if you're ready to, to accept Jesus as your personal Savior because of his payment for you on the cross, only he can cover your sins, I want to invite you into a relationship with him. And it's simple as having a conversation. One, we already know it. I'm a sinner. Tell God you're a sinner. Two, tell God that you believe Jesus died on the cross and rose again for you. We all have to explain the cross. Number three, you must accept the free gift of salvation. And here's what happens when we go into the supernatural power of God. We now become spiritual beings. The old becomes new. And we now can walk in the power that the Spirit of God provides. And all over this crucifixion story, we see the spiritual doing incredible things in the darkest moment of the day. In the darkest hour of mankind, we see a Roman centurion who believes. If you have your Bibles, look at, at chapter 27, verse 54. After Jesus died, and the ground shook, and the dead, uh, the dead walked, in verse 54, it says this. Remember, everybody's got to explain the cross. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And here's what they said. Truly, this was the Son of God. Here's, here's what is, blows my mind about this. The death of Jesus, darkest moment ever. We don't even have the resurrection yet. And the centurion is saying, that was God. That was God in flesh. 
That was so supernatural, that was so powerful, that now I have to put my belief, my faith into that person. I believe in this moment, the centurion is saying that Jesus is the Son of God, the one true Savior. Mary, Jesus' mother, stayed by his side the, in the entire time. What a spiritual act for her to stand by the side of Jesus, never abandoning him, never leaving him. Joseph, a secret disciple of Jesus, gives Jesus his tomb. Joseph comes out of discipleship hiding. Joseph was a rich, influential person in Jerusalem, and he didn't want anyone to know that he was following Jesus. But when he saw this spectacular moment, Joseph comes out of hiding, so much so that along with Nicodemus, a religious leader who also came to Jesus, that they take his body down, that they care for his body, that they wrap it up, and Joseph gives him his brand new tomb. Nicodemus helps, helps work through this entire thing, and we know Nicodemus as the guy that Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus was born again, and he stood around at danger of his own life and became a follower of Jesus who now cares for the very body of Jesus, Simon who carried his cross. Even Peter, who earlier had defended Jesus before he denied him, had that spiritual act, and in the dying thief next to Jesus, we learn, had come to faith in Jesus because of what was happening around him. These spiritual acts owed to be Simon to carry the cross of Jesus. John taking care of Jesus' mother, even at risk of his own death. Spiritual people, people doing uh, unbelievable things, having the opportunity to do incredible acts of service in this moment to Jesus himself because of their faith, their change, and their transformation in Jesus. In these moments, we learn this, that, that my life, once I've been saved in Jesus, is no longer mine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, it says, you were bought with a Christ. Therefore, honor God with your body. How do you know if you are a saved person? Let me give you two markers of someone who follows uh, someone who is saved. Number one, saved people follow Jesus. Saved people follow Jesus. Saved people don't say some prayer at a camp or at a church service. They don't go through some baptismal thing and then forget about Jesus. Saved people don't just walk through their life like Jesus doesn't exist. Saved people care about who Jesus is. They care about God's word, and they follow it. That's what saved people do. That's why the Bible says you'll know them by their love, because Jesus said to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Saved people follow Jesus. If you're here today and you're not sure if you're saved, I would ask you the question, are you following Jesus? Do you aim to please him? Do you love him? Do you worship him? Do you give to him? Do you serve him? If the answer to all those questions are no, then yeah, let's talk about your salvation. Let's talk about whether or not you've actually believed in Jesus and you're now following him. Because when an orphan is adopted by a new father, they become a part of that family. And they do what that family does. That's what saved people do. We follow Jesus. Mary followed Jesus to the cross. John followed Jesus. The disciples now will come back to Jesus. These, these Nicodemus and Joseph are out of hiding. They are now proudly following Jesus with their lives. Saved people follow Jesus. And number two, saved people serve people. That's why at Branch Life Church, we care about helping the hurting, the poor, and the hungry. That's why we care about our neighbors who are in pain. And it doesn't matter if they ever come to a worship service. We love them simply because they are our neighbors. And that is what God has asked us to do. So we as followers of Jesus 
as we follow him and we deepen our roots in him, Branch Life Church, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, we extend our reach. Why in the world are we a church that exists to connect deeper to God so that we can reach farther in this world? Why? Because of the cross. Because of the cross of Jesus. Today, as we sit in this moment of the cross, we see Jesus' suffering, we see his pain, his supernatural act that takes care of our natural problem, and we say to ourselves, the heart of God is someone who loves me. Today, I want you to know this. God loved you so much that he gave his only son to die for you. You are loved by God. Let's pray. God, in these moments, as we think about your crucifixion, and then as we go through this week, we pray, God, that the reality and the heaviness of the cross would weigh on our hearts and our minds. Help us never to take the cross lightly. We thank you, Jesus, for willingly suffering on our behalf, for paying the debt that I couldn't pay, and I'm sorry for my sin. And God, I pray that you would help us to walk in a supernatural power with victory over sin. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to invite you just to explore anew your relationship with Jesus. Today, if you're not sure if you're saved, in these moments, you can have that conversation with God. Become a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're a disciple in hiding. Maybe you keep your relationship with Jesus secret. And you'll show up to a worship service on Sundays, but you don't let other people know. Maybe today, if Jesus can stand this suffering for you, then you can stand up for Jesus with your life. And are you ready to follow Jesus no matter what he says, no matter where he asks you to go, no matter what he asks you to do? Maybe you're someone here who, who is deeply in love with Jesus, and today that love just deepens, and your heart is broken. Today, just commune with him and thank him for his love and his sacrifice for you. God, we thank you for the cross. We're excited to look forward to celebrate the resurrection. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to do a couple of things today. Number one, if you could fill out your connection card, we would encourage you guys each to do that. If you're a guest with us today, please don't forget to fill out your card and we have a Matthew journal for you downstairs. We want to encourage you to come on Friday to our Good Friday service where we are going to look at the crucifixion and the statement from the cross in depth and we're going to have communion together. That's going to be at 7 p.m. on Friday. And then join us for our special Easter Sunday. We are anticipating an incredible day of celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. The death, the darkest day of, of, the, of, uh, of mankind is now brought on the brightest day. The light will shine and we can celebrate. This is a day for the church to party. This is a day for the church to sing and to shout and to bring our friends to the celebration. So we want you to work hard at celebrating Easter with us. We think we might be full and overflowing. So for those of you that are regular members at Branch and you're coming, come. If you have friends, stay here. We might need some of you to sit in an overflow area down in our cafe. That would be a fantastic problem to have. So we appreciate you guys doing all that you can for it. We're going to uh, 
turn our minds to Easter, and we want to show you this quick promo. Hey, thanks for sticking all the way through the end. We hope that those lessons that we talked about will be encouragement to you. We want to invite you back next time as we go to the next day that changed the world. And if you're interested in digging deeper or connecting more, we've got a special gift for you while supplies last. If you fill out your connection card and let us know that you'd like these Matthew journals, we will gladly send one to you. Don't forget to fill that out online before you log off. We'll see you next time.